Hello and welcome to AA's second episode. In this one, Adam and I talk about Ruina, Fairy Tale of the Forgotten Ruins, a free-to-play Japanese game made with the RPG Maker 2000 engine. It was originally released on December 24th, 2008. because that's the best way to do it. Um, so on that note, um, let's start talking about Ruina, Adam. Um, I'm curious about your history with this game because um, it is a more obscure game, um, how you first found out about it, when you first found out about it, and what your experience with it has been both in terms of playing it but also possibly um, anything else you've done with the game. So let me try to provide some proper context for this. Um, in the long history of indie games, there's kind of a separate but sometimes integrated history of Japanese indie games. So some examples are things like Cave Story, which was hugely influential, kind of like an early sort of search action Metroidvania kind of game. You have La Mulana, which is like a really huge, sprawling exploration game inspired by like MSX stuff and Tower of Draga and that kind of thing. Um, those are kind of more uh, more well-known. Back in the day, like on Derek Yu's website, you had a lot of people talking about those games. They were in the discourse at that time, like a couple, a decade or two ago. At the same time, you also have um, more obscure stuff. I mean, in terms of, for myself, as someone who kind of grew up like from middle school onward, playing a bunch of games made in the RPG Maker engine, that is something that actually makes up a fairly big chunk of Japanese independent development that often just gets ignored. Like some of that stuff is better known, especially a lot of the horror games. Like for instance, you have stuff like Ib or um, Mad Father, The Witch's House, that kind of thing. All kind of horror adventure games where you play a little girl wandering around a dungeon or like a mansion or a museum and all kinds of scary things pop out and attack you. Those games often have custom art, custom music, are fairly scary, have pretty strong character development, are much more about sort of being there with the characters and learning more things about them rather than being traditional RPGs. Um, those games, from what I understand, are pretty well known. Um, and, and you have like even earlier horror games too. Like for instance, there's a visual novel slash adventure game called Corpse Party that had an edition that came out for the PSP back in the day. But as a matter of fact, as far as I understand, it was first made even like decades before that as an RPG, a very early RPG Maker game, like an RPG Maker game for the initial like early runs of Japanese PCs, like back in the day of uh, the very first Toho games and other stuff in that vein. Now, as it turns out, aside from the horror games, you have more conventional Japanese style role playing games, too. It's just not as many of them have made their way over here to make a splash. If I'm thinking about stuff that's been translated to English, you have titles like Helen's Mysterious Castle, which is a game I love a lot. Um, kind of like representative of this sort of search action Metroidvania style role-playing game genre, which is like kind of an independent genre of that game in Japan. Also, we should clarify something. 
we should clarify something about the availability of this game for Western audiences. I think right off the bat, because you mentioned you're, I think that's what you're alluding to here. Um, this game is not, has never been really brought over to the West. It, it, it's a game that was released in Japan. I don't know when you might have to, uh, correct or add that later on Adam uh, but then was basically fan translated so the only way to play it right now is through a fan translation it is not uh, you know widely available oh don't worry I'm getting to it um, so Home's Mysterious Castle which you do have to pay for to get you can buy it on Steam these days if you like it's a really good game um, you also have Demon King Chronicle which is another game in this vein it's all about kind of playing a character exploring a large dungeon uh, sort of like mechanically difficult, almost more like a survival horror game, but it's also like constructed in such a way that you sort of learn everything about the world and everything in it from ground zero. Um, so these are games that, from what I understand, are very popular in the Japanese indie scene, have a very small sort of dedicated fandom over here, much smaller than like other horror games, which have done much better in the US, honestly. Like, you know, for instance, there is a Let's Play of Demon King Chronicle um, that you can find in a Let's Play archive from something awful where someone played all the way through and really enjoyed it. And actually, like, the best way to get a hold of those games these days, because uh, this, the distribution service that used to put it out is, like, apparently folded or is having a hard time, uh, that Let's Play is probably the best way to, like, track down the files to play that game now. Um, now, Ruina is even trickier because while... Hell's Mysterious Castle is just something you can buy on Steam. And Demon King Chronicle was for a little while available, I think on Playism or something is how it was distributed. Ruina, so Ruina came out in 2008. It is a freeware game, like a lot of RPG maker games are, and actually like a lot of these indie games are. Cave Story was initially free. Uh, La Mulana, the initial edition of that was initially free. Ruina was designed to be a free game. It is as sort of idiosyncratic and characterful as it is because it wasn't made for a commercial audience. It was just like, as far as we know, one person out there who decided to make the kind of game he wanted, and that's exactly what he did. It, from what I understand, is pretty popular in Japan, and there are like a couple of people in sort of the English-Japanese-speaking like uh, game visual novel translation community who were aware of it and went, oh yeah, that game is really good. But it was not translated until, I believe, last year when someone who I talked to for an interview on Country Roll, which you can read if you seek it out, just decided one day, hey, this game is really cool. I'm stuck at home because of the pandemic, so I'm going to translate the whole thing into English myself. And that's, that's exactly what he did when he reached out to... And of course he had help. There was uh, another person who provided some pretty major assistance in terms of making sure the coding worked and everything lined up. Now, when this translator, who goes by the handle Dink on the internet, he reached out to the original creator of Ruina, who goes, this is either their name or their internet handle, I'm sorry, Think Shokichi Karakusa. He reached out to Karakusa and said, um, hey, let me, um, can I translate your game and release it here? And Karakusa said, yes. Um, my only stipulation is that my name is there so people know I made it and also that the game is never sold. That will always be free. Being a free game, just sort of distributed online, has always been part of this game's identity. It is crucial to what this thing is. So now today, 
Um, you know, the translation is pretty solid. It's not perfect. Apparently there are a couple of errors. There's definitely like some little text things left over that the translator wasn't able to clean up just because going through the RPG Maker engine and just doing everything by scratch in English as he did is just an extremely messy endeavor that puts certain limits on what you can do. But, you know, for what this game is, this is a huge multifaceted role-playing game with multiple characters, classes, dungeons, just all kinds of different variables. It's kind of shocking that this ever made it in English at all. And in fact, um, when news came out that this game had been translated into English, um, of, of course, like, it didn't make a huge splash per se, but I saw a good number of people, like in Japan and sort of in other countries that were freaking out because Ruina has been translated into Chinese. I think there's at least a couple other translation patches in Asian countries um, where people found the time to do this. But, you know, the fact that this would ever be easily available in English was thought to be very unlikely. So I think we're all very lucky that someone took it upon themselves to make this more accessible to people. Um, unfortunately, it happened after the very good card uh, video card game library of ruina came out which just totally nuked this game's seo potential and library of ruina is great too and it's also kind of obscure it's a cult game but um i think ruina is really interesting and that's why i made alex play it for this podcast i mean i'll be honest you didn't have to try too too hard to convince me i did a little bit of research into the game i think the first time you mentioned it and the visual art style for this game has a very, we'll call it classic and painterly look to it. Um, that kind of sold me on it pretty much right away. And it was it was a correct feeling for me to have because as I've been playing this game, what has been really engaging is discovering. It's, it's you know, what thing will I click on next and what shocking thing will, will sort of come my way? Um, and it's really kept me engaged. Um it's been really, um, yeah, it's been a ton of fun playing the game. So um, I'm very thankful that, Adam, you told me about it because I don't think I would have found out about this game otherwise. Um, I certainly was not aware of the original 2008 release. Um, I was not aware, without you telling me about it, about the fan translation that occurred as a result of the pandemic. Um, and I am very thankful to be here, able to play it, you know, today in, you know, 2022. Um and I can't wait to finish it. I should say I have not yet finished the game. I'm still making my way through it. Uh, I'm not really sure how far I am, but I'm going to venture, I guess, I'm probably about halfway, maybe, um, roughly. Adam nods. <laughs> is that okay? My guess is that you're about a third of the way through. Okay. Um, so, you know, Ruina's, it's not the length of Elden Ring or something, but it's not 100 hours long. My understanding is it's about, like, 25, 30 hours or so. The wild thing about Ruina, though, is that it has a bunch of sort of different paths you can take and sort of different things that encourage replayability. So even though you can probably get from start to end in that amount of time, if you try all the different routes, the different characters, all these different combinations of things, there's a lot of stuff you can keep digging out even after you thought that you knew everything that was going on. Actually, so Alex, we've talked a bunch about where Ruina came from. I don't think we've actually talk, talked about what this game is. So I'm curious to know as uh i mean i could tell you but i think that's boring i'd prefer since like you're new to it you give some explanation of like what your experience with it is like 
what's what caught you off guard like what things seem familiar what games it reminds you of i sort of like when i think one reason maybe we're doing this after elden ring is that honestly playing elden ring for the first time reminded me a lot of this game which is bonkers considering that you know this was a game released for free and purposefully kept as a free game while elden ring is a much larger experience that somehow keeps like sort of a similar spirit of explore of exploration and discovery as like a random free rpg from 2008 so in that case i'm curious to know um, what is this exactly that's a great question and so i did i did allude to what my favorite thing about this game is and i think that connects to what my favorite thing about elden ring is and that's exploration and discovery and the ways in which the game is able to surprise you um and really is continuously able to, to do so throughout the game um but that's a very broad idea so specifically what is this game i would say part of its dna is very much the sort of JRPG format that you might recognize from a Dragon Quest or one of the, you know, original Final Fantasies. Is that very sort of you have three, maybe four party members. It's turn-based combat. Uh, you have equipment you can have on your characters. You have skills. There's even classes. Um, it's very familiar JRPG, you know, landscape. Um, but there's another element to this. And Adam, you mentioned light novels, and you mentioned uh, or not light novels. Um, what do you want to call game it? Books. Uh, yes, game game books. Yes, um, you know th that's also very apt here because the other element of this game that it really evokes is is like CRPGs, uh, uh, you know, text RPGs, um, and a big component of this is how it conveys story. It's all um, <laughs> tabletop. Yes. No. I'm I'm getting to tabletop. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but uh, sort of a big element of like the sort of the classic Western RPG where, you know, you're talking about like a, a Baldur's Gate or an Icewind Dale. It has a little bit of that as well. But I think, and what Adam just flashed my way was tabletop. Uh, tabletop RPGs have, a, you know, that's really what it's, it's evoking at that point. Um, and that is in the way in which it decides to communicate its world. It's through its maps. It's through its dungeons, like how all of that is structured and how it specifically um, allows you to interact with the world um, by giving you choice of where you want to go next, rather where you want to click on the map next and how that opens up possibilities for you, uh, both in terms of narrative opportunities, but also your choices, how that might lead you down <laughs> literally a, a waterfall uh, well, or, or, or what have you, or a hole in the, in the ground, uh, or an encounter that you might, you know, have or not have as a result. Um, but also in the ways in which it opens up the map to you. Um, and I think that element of choice is also unique to this in the same way that maybe it is to Elden Ring. It just, it's communicated in a very different way. Um, and also kind of the, the sense of openness of the world. Uh, I mean, there's certainly nodes. Any game will have nodes of, you know, you kind of work your way into a you know story point. Um, but actually, I have a, here's a random sort of question um, because this game is very open. There's not a lot of explanation in it. You kind of have to find your own explanations, either in terms of the lore, in the world, talking to people, finding, you know, written things. But I actually have a random question for you really quick, Adam. Did you ever die in this game? Uh, yeah, I've died a number of times. I mean, usually, I think, so there's a couple of non-typical game overs where if you happen to be in the right situation at the right time, 
kind of a little original ending, like hitting the bat a bad end in the visual novel or something. Is that sort of what you're talking well, about? <laughs> so I think we've scratched on, on a different experience with the game here. I did not get that, but what I did get was a character that I had not yet met, whose name I forget right now, who basically gave me a hint, and because uh, I um, suffice to say I died to a boss encounter that you have in the let's call it open world um and it is an optional boss encounter and this character told me that you know don't worry about it some of these encounters might be too difficult for you right now and this one's optional too you fool so what are you doing and it was it was like what it like broke that fourth wall right open and i it, it was so neat and actually i'm gonna see if i can try uh i feel like you might have a response to this because i'm curious also about what your experience was about a bad ending uh, but also it'll give me a chance to to bring that hopefully uh, that same set of of text on screen. Something about Ruin, I'm not sure if we're doing a great job necessarily explaining. When Alex refers to nodes, he really does mean it. Like the way the game is set up is it's a map with little dots on it, and you move your cursor around and select the dots, and those trigger different encounters. This is the way the game is designed, so it's not. It's not a straight-up dungeon crawler, like, say, a wizardry game. There's definitely, so for some explanation, wizardry is one of the oldest computer RPG series. Took heavy inspiration from Dungeons & Dragons. All of the combat design in Dragon Quest, and by extension, most Japanese RPGs are just lifted directly from wizardry. So there's some wizardry influence in there, but it's not like a first-person navigation, like in a wizardry game. It's also not like a Final Fantasy-style game where you control a character around. It really is just you move your cursor, you select stuff, and things happen. You could almost maybe sort of draw a comparison between this game and what it's doing and something like um, Saga Scarlet Grace, which is one of um, sort of Infant Terrible... I probably mispronounced that. I'm sorry. Like Akitoshi Kawazu at Square Enix, like his team's game that also takes similar influence from Western RPGs and is also sort of all about entering nodes on the map and triggering encounters. The You could argue it's restrictive in a way because the way this game is set up is such that you're just moving over, selecting stuff. It doesn't even try to necessarily create the fantasy of like you're actually moving the character around it's more abstract than that and some people may find that sort of like oh it takes me out of what i'm doing it's not quote unquote immersive or whatever but something i do appreciate a lot about ruina is that because it's so it's based so heavily around encounters there's just a really great constant stream of like really creative encounter design happening it's not like a Dragon Quest where you're just sort of constantly going around and getting in the same fights. A lot of the time, it's really just that you're sort of triggering discrete, cool things that just keep popping up unexpectedly. And so it's able to surprise you a lot. I mean, it's the sort of discussion that we have about Western RPGs as well. When you have um, people who talk about the design of current RPGs, they talk about sort of quote-unquote quote filler combat or something, like sort of striking the right balance between encounters that are meant to be blown through and sort of serve as like setting the tempo and encounters that take actual thought to beat. And you'll have some people who say, oh, like, what's the point of having fights if you just win the fights automatically? Like, shouldn't every fight be in there for a reason? Personally, I feel like the random encounters in RPGs 
literal sort of garbage and just in there to add flavor do kind of add something to the pacing. I wouldn't say like you need to remove them entirely, but you know, Ruina I think does strike a good balance between you do have a couple of random encounters. You have some fights that are more in there to set a certain expectation or to sort of cue a certain scene, but you do also just have some really odd things that'll happen. You'll have enemies who will surprise you in a certain way. There's a good amount of thought put into how things happen and like sort of the creativity of the kind of events that happen. Almost like, again, like you're playing a pretty entertaining tabletop game. Um, Can I add something to that? Yeah. Um, so one thing I do want to add to that is it's not even, it's also the pacing of the monsters because I feel like every area, a, a monster type never really overstays its welcome. Um, like you're moving through the game at such a pace that, you know, by the time you're, you know, you're, you're fighting the, like the blue, like kind of slimy noodles or whatever they're, I don't know what they're called in the game, but you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, they're basically, yeah, they're basically slimes. Uh, like by the time you get to the electric version of that, it's like, okay, cool. And they're much stronger. Like nothing really overstays its welcome. And I will say, um, the reason I wanted to also chime in, um, Adam, because you mentioned that it's not really possible to grind in this game. And I discovered that you can go back to locations you've already been in and you will get random monster encounters. That is possible. You can actually kind of grind in this game. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it uh, because I think the game is paced well enough as it is. But sometimes, and this is where so we're going to get more into the mechanics of the game. Um, one of the mechanics in the game is that there is an EXP uh, bar and this EXP bar basically, uh, as you gain EXP as you fight, it eventually maxes out and then you get an EXP boost. But any EXP you gain beyond that point is sort of wasted as a result. So you're not really benefiting from continuing or as much benefiting from continuing to uh, you know, grind out encounters. So there is a motivator for you to go and rest and end your day. And there is that's the other thing. There There is a day counter and a day progression um, and there's a limit to what you can do in days as well in terms of harvesting uh, resources and things of that sort, which is actually very Persona-like. Quick correction. So first off, you don't get EXP boosts from um, oh, filling the bar. Yep. You earn kind of individual points that actually count toward your character's class because this game also has a class system on top of everything. Like you sort of choose your character's profession, kind of like, again, you're playing a tabletop game and um, you earn like these sorts of, like specialty points, SP, by doing different things. And one of the ways you do them is by going through these dungeons, earning a certain amount of experience in one playthrough, and then kind of earning a point because of that. And the game does sort of, again, it encourages these longer dungeon dives and it keeps increasing the amount of experience you need. So at a certain point, if you just stick around a certain area and keep fighting the same monsters, you're never going to hit that larger point, especially because you always earn much more experience and like gold and that kind of thing seeking out these more challenging encounters versus just staying in the same area. Um, well, and, SP. SP is also a currency in the game. There are some uh, encounters that will ask for SP in exchange for like cookbooks. And when that first happened, it really surprised me. So that's a, that's a very dark Soulsian sort of thing where it's, you know, you're leveling up uh, currency is also a real world currency. Um, so I've I've actually where I am in the game I've I've maxed out my current character class uh, that I've I'm I've been leveling through SP and I'm 
I haven't unlocked another one. I'm guessing there's something that might happen at some point to give me the ability to select another specialization class, but that hasn't happened yet. So I'm just sitting on a mound of SP. Um, so I might buy some cookbooks. Um, so my understanding is that like your ability to choose a class is gated behind these specific items you find. So there's, I think there's at least one, one other item, maybe more that let you sort of side class or pick out an additional class to put SP into. And then there's, there's, um, prestige classes in this game as well. So once you get far enough, you eventually kind of unlock a more powerful range of classes that kind of specialize whichever way. I don't know if there's like particular requirements because I haven't actually gone that far yet. It could be that there is, it could be that there isn't, but it does sort of ex ask, ask you to spec out your character in a certain way and think about how they're building it. I don't know if I'd say the game is so challenging that you have to build in a certain way. Like again, um, the game is sort of constructed to have you throw yourself into these unexpected difficult scenarios where you can die. And of course I have died a bunch of times playing this game. Um, but I think a bunch of different builds are viable, even if they're not 100% perfect. So you have a bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, actually, something else I'd like to point out about this game, since we're talking about classes. So classes are actually separate from what are called, I don't, I forget exactly what they're called. They're basically like the origin system from Dragon Age Origins. Hilariously, or Dragon Age Origins was released, I think, in the year after this game. And I'm sure like they came up with that idea on their own. The interesting thing about, thing about Ruina, though, especially for a game of its vintage and of its resources, is it has four different character backgrounds you can choose. I mean, it can be a knight, a mage, a thief, or a priest. And that doesn't necessarily lock you down to a class. I think the way it works is that for the different specialties you can pick, which background you choose or it determines how difficult it is to invest in other things. So for instance, if you're sort of raised by a knight, it's much easier to be a knight or a swordsman while training to be a mage is much more difficult. So that's probably not going to happen. But more importantly, the really cool thing that this game does. Can oh. but, no, just, just to say, but it can happen. You you can choose to take the more difficult route. You're just making the game more difficult on yourself. But that is, you are free to do so. That's also true. And it is also, again, I think it's part of this game's computer RPG DNA, where it doesn't just sort of lock you in these specific builds and ask you to solve challenges with those builds. It does give you freedom if not necessarily to develop the other characters in the game fully, to sort of choose which character you are and express that in a number of different ways. Um, but in addition to that, at least to me, one of the most impressive things is the fact that each of these different origins you can choose often comes with a whole different set of characters and alliances and like some extra story stuff. Like um, for instance, if you start out as a knight, you start out, or if you start out raised by a knight, you begin in this big castle, you're friends of like the cool ninja butler who I guess is sort of a reference to a Toho character in retrospect. Um, don't ask me to explain that. Uh, anyway, um, you have that whole background and some extra stuff comes up. You sort of meet certain characters who will come up, become more important later. You get a different context for who they are. But if you pick the background raised by orphans, which is sort of the thief background, you start as an orphan, your friends are all broke. Um, one party members, adopted sisters are taken away from him and you spend the early game kind of being scammed by a much richer guy who's clearly taking advantage of you just a, it's a very different it's not like the story itself completely changes but it does sort of 
alter the game you're playing in some pretty significant ways. My understanding, I don't know if that applies to all the backgrounds. Like just for fun, I tried sort of going through the sort of raised by a mage origin. And I feel like at least from a little bit I play, that seemed to have less immediate story relevance than the other paths. But there's still some cool things you learn through there. Like you get to hang out with the character Nell, who's sort of the all-rounder slash crafter and who is great. And is sort of like, I feel like maybe this game's Ronnie. I'm probably totally wrong. <laughs> That's the impression I sort of get. Um, but um, I get the impression that path does have less story content. I, I didn't check out the priest path yet, so I'm not sure about that. But, you know, like because this is a free game, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some variance in terms of like which parts of the games are more fleshed out on which art. So it could be that this isn't like perfectly built out so that no matter which way you go, there'll be something cool. But at the very least, I think you can go through this game something like four times, one with like each of those backgrounds and get something new out of it that you didn't expect. Not just because you stumble across something you missed, but because there'll be some interesting variance introduced by your character's path that changes things in a significant way. So this is a good time for me to kind of mention what I started the game as. Um, I did the orphan route and uh, played that alongside um, basically a thief character that I um, uh, specced into an archer. So... Um, but that also that does influence some other elements of the game as well, which is who your other party members are going to be. So if you are a thief or an archer, you're less likely to pick another character that has the same set of skills. Um, so I know for a fact that like uh, Paris in this case, um, who actually is not, you know, he does have some abilities that you you don't have. Um, he also has. Oh, Paris is the bro uh, as, as Chuna's brother. Chuna, oh, fair. Um, Chuna is the uh, young sister of Paris who uh, falls ill right at the beginning of the game. And it's pretty much your motivation for pretty much the rest of what you're doing other than the forces in town and like just the general dread of monsters propelling you forward to resolve whatever great evil uh, is upon the land. But she's like your personal motivation for at least as an orphan, because I don't know if it's the same. Uh, if you care as much about Chuna, potentially she is connected to your background and other, um, you know, background stories. So, um, Paris. Okay. So it is true. Each of the different paths puts you in a direct contact with a number of different NPCs. You can sort of accompany, follow you along the game. Um, Paris does kind of run into you and yell like, Oh no, Chuna's in trouble in all of the paths. But it's only in the raised by orphan orphan sort of thief thief oriented one that Paris like that you actually see Chuna abducted by a harpy and you you follow Paris chasing after her. Um, now you know a bunch of these different characters can kind of be specced in different ways as well. Like for instance, Paris is someone who steals things and can sort of notice when something is off or when something is dangerous. But he's also someone where if you want to load him down of armor and give him two weapons, he can be a pretty strong damage dealer. Um, or if you want him to be more like a more speedy thief character, he can also be that. Um, so it is you because you start out with Paris, I feel like maybe you'd feel more inclined to take him along just because he feels personally invested in things. And there are also like each of the characters in this game have little side quests that play out as you explore. You might miss if you don't take them along. But it's also true that 
You know, you can start out with Paris. You see him wandering around. You don't have to take him into the dungeon. That's your choice. You can just leave him behind. Um, if you're a thief, why take another thief? Why not take, like, uh, there's this guy, Laban, who's this one-armed old man. You can, like, equip different kinds of arms to him, which is really cool. But he also is, like, pretty strong with swords. You have Siphon, who is a mage who's a huge piece of work and what you might call, like, Chuni or whatever. He's a very strong magician who's also very annoying to have in your party. You have a priest character who I briefly forget the name of, but her gimmick is that she's constantly just monologuing about different bits of lore. But if you have her in the right place at the right time, she will explain things to you about what you're seeing and going through that you might not know if you didn't take her along. So, And of course, you find other fun characters through your journey, even some in the dungeon, including some just out-of-nowhere stuff you might not even expect. Like, again, because of this game's encounter design, there are all kinds of bizarre things that will happen. Maybe you'll stumble across a dragon child when you're wandering through the dungeon. Maybe you'll fight an enemy, but, oh, it turns out that the enemy is uh, friends with a party member of yours, and they let you go. This just plays out. If you're lucky, you'll catch it. But the way this game is designed, as you're going through, there will be circumstances that pay off for you as if it was a sort of custom design for you. But there are also moments that will pass because you weren't in the right place at the right time. And that's fine. I mean, this is not a game like a Kawazu game where it's sort of purposefully designed to just not be gameable in that way, where it's like constantly throwing new things at you. It is a game that you can master and sort of like overwhelm difficulty curve with to some degree. But it is one where, like a regular Western RPG, you will probably miss things unless you're being very careful. And that's fine. Like, there's enough weird one-off stuff in this game. Again, like, because you're already expected to go through it a couple different times, you'll probably hit something new the next time you go through it. And you'll go, oh, yeah, that was really cool. Right. And I, I do want to chime in at this point and, and mention that one of my favorite things about playing this game was talking to Adam about it as I was playing it. And having those moments of, oh, so hey, this encounter, it went like this for me, but it went totally different for you. Um, like there's one instance where you might need to have a character who can swim and that'll get you past the encounter or you just bring a rope along. Alternatively, there are some encounters where there are very difficult boss encounters that you might have to roughhouse and kind of power your way through, which I did. Or if you're Adam, you have the right character in your party and you just breeze through it and you get like another bit of story that I totally missed out on. But but I love that this is a game that is a willing to take the risk that you're going to have a very different experience with something. It doesn't feel the need that you need to experience everything on your playthrough. Your playthrough feels unique to your own choices. And it's not because of a Mass Effectian like chain of consequence but simply because of how you approach each encounter. And I think that's cool. We forgot to add something very important. Alex mentioned rope and swimming. That is right. There is rope in this game. There is swimming in this game. Your characters have sort of a different set of skills that you need to get through the dungeon as you're roaming around. Um, like, for instance, you have a character with a survival skill, which means that they can swim, they can pilot a boat, and those are important in encounters. You have characters you can uh, use thievery, which in this game isn't so much about stealing as it is um, sort of opening chests or unlocking doors, which you will need to do if you are in a certain area and you don't have a thief, you are in a lot of trouble. Like even in like 
the first couple of areas, there are some where if you can't unlock the right door, you're just stuck, just bashing the lock, hoping it opens, and that you don't just die. Well, or you have the ability to mix magic keys, but you don't get that until much later, and you could really try to get those ingredients but the amount of harvesting and grinding to get those like literally just going in the spot where you can find those and trying again and again and again and there's a limit to it to it each day and you would just have to like grind more days out and i don't know i feel like doing that would just be kind of boring but you could is what i'm saying the game does give you that option it just isn't optimal and as Alex said, this is also a game of crafting in it. And in fact, there's two different kinds of crafting. There's cooking, no, three. There's cooking and there's mixing and there's like making different kinds of equipment. These are all armor things. And armor, are armor and weapons are separate. Yeah. And as you find items for the game, you'll find more ways to craft them. There's some items you can only get through crafting. Crafting is much cheaper. There's also dowsing. There's also dowsing and that it comes a little bit kind of mid-game-ish, but there's someone who will teach you dowsing. Which I guess is a, it's not really crafting. It's more of a, another way to harvest equipment. But there's a, so many like little like alternatives on everything, um, and uh, there's hell. There's mining. There's fishing. I mean, there's so much in this game. Yeah, like I was gonna say. In addition to all these skills, you also have tools. So in the very beginning, you very quickly find uh, pickaxes and rope, and this is a game where you will need those things. And often those will kind of. So if you're in a certain situation, you're asked, how do you deal with that situation? Because this is a game that has sort of limited choices and consequence. What that means is, oh, if you have Laban in your party, you can swim. You can uh, swim through this current without having all your party take huge amounts of damage. But if you have a rope, you can just use the rope and get by, and that's fine. The game allows for either one. On top of that, there are also... You can use those tools even in context where it might not seem immediately obvious. So for instance, pretty early on, you find a suspicious little part of the map that sort of says, oh, something gleams in the back there. And if you're smart enough to take out your pickaxe and use a pickaxe on that area, you'll start getting iron from it. And it turns out that's a mining point. Or silver. Or silver. The game doesn't necessarily tell you that straight off. You're kind of left to say, well, I have a pickaxe. Pickaxe can be used on rocks, so if something's shining back there, I can just use a pickaxe and it'll be fine. And it's right, it works out. The game also doesn't tell you, hey, if you use a pickaxe on the right piece of ground that a note in your memo told you, you'll dig up treasure. And that's definitely something that happens in this game. This game has like buried objects on the map that don't have nodes, and you need to like sort of follow clues to track down. This is a game where if you uh, fish in the right spot by the giant dragon skeleton, you can find stuff down there. This is a game where you just take out your fishing rod and sometimes you'll get fish. Sometimes you'll get a rainbow fish or something just extremely bonkers and unexpected will happen. Maybe a giant squid will pop out, which is terrifying. You don't want to do, but there's just so many... Again, so many little unexpected things that keep just popping out. And you're like, what? I didn't even know that could happen. But no, it just happens all the time. This is also a game that will throw a boss encounter your way, where if you didn't bother to read one of the books that you found along the way that literally tells you how to beat the boss, well, you might just not beat the boss. because, Or you just get lucky and have the right person in your, in your party at that point in time. And you figure out that there's only a very specific avenue to damaging this one boss. Um, I guess there's a few po possible avenues. Like you could maybe find other ways to do it. Um, 
but there, the, you know, the game is again, it's not afraid to completely stump you if you don't pay attention. And it, the, the one thing I will say that that's fair is there's a lot in this game, but it's not overwhelming. It's not a huge game. It's not Elden Ring. Um, it, it, you know, you can experience this game probably if you really tried. I don't know. Do you think this is a 2030? Oh, that's that's deeper than I would have thought, actually. Um, but yeah, it's not a huge game. It, 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 you could probably even do it faster than that if you really wanted to. Or if you had played it already, uh, you probably would go through a little bit faster. But because uh, honestly, reading everything does take time. There's a lot of reading. Um, but but it, it's never overwhelming. Um, and that's, I think, the, the, the key component here. Uh, Alex mentioned reading. I should mention that there's a world map in this game you can buy that I totally miss the first time I try going through this thing. You can open up the world map and there'll be a little blurbs about all the places in the game. This isn't like a proper Baldur's Gate kind of story where you're traveling all over the place. You're really just in your small town and kind of direct surrounding environs. But it is cool to know, hey, this kingdom over there is directly responsible for this thing to happen there and like these things all exist. You can find children's myths that will tell you details about the story you might have missed. You can find like legends about famous swords or um all kinds of other stuff like this game really has like quote-unquote lore like the kind of stuff you'll see in a skyrim or elder scrolls game <laughs> you know it's funny we're, we're here we're back to talking about elder scrolls but it's it's inevitable but um the differences in in elder scrolls it is overwhelming and and you know because i mentioned that it's never overwhelming in this game because i th i feel like Everything you find is there's an importance to it. Literally, it might tell you how to defeat a boss, you know. Um, in El in sorry, in Elder Ring, in Elder Scrolls, in Elder Scrolls, there's a lot of lore. Some of which someone has put a lot of time and thought into. You don't really have to read it. You can kind of forget it exists altogether. Some of it might even not be very good. Some of it might be amazing. But it is, however, a degree of lore that can feel overwhelming. Whereas this game has just the right amount of lore and it has consequence. Alex, the Morrowind fans are going to tear you limb from limb for saying that the lore in Morrowind is quote-unquote too much compared to the 2008 indie free game Runa. No. Um, no, I do agree. I think it is sort of an interesting range of difference between, again, we talk about the difference between Western RPGs and Japanese RPGs, where Japanese RPGs are definitely influenced by Western games. Like, you look at Dragon Quest, you can see direct links to the Ultima games, for instance, like the way the world map is laid out, the way that each town is like a has its own people walking around. Um, Ruina is interesting because it does... It has a larger possibility space for sort of player self-expression. It gives you more tools to define who you are and what you're doing there. For instance, I saw when Alex was playing the game, he chose a thief character. Asked the thief character, you know, most of your easiest options to spec into are going to be a thief abilities. But one of those similar professions that are easy to spec into as a thief are archery. And because Alex happened to be wielding a bow, he said, I'm going to be an archer. And he was. So you can make the argument this isn't proper choice and consequence per se, because it's not as if, I mean, this choice is I'm going to be an archer and that's it. Like that defines like the character you play. It's not like changing the world state in any meaningful way. But, you know, I think that is valid to some degree. Like I think where Ruina splits the difference is that it gives you that player exclusivity, but it's also more of this kind of Japanese style walled garden where it, a lot of the elements it includes do have a purpose for being there. It's much more restrained and kind of what it builds its world out of, but it, 
because of that, I think it's able to hit a pretty happy medium between giving you freedom while having most of your interactions with the world be meaningful instead of taking the risk that you might have some interactions that are meaningful. Like you might play through an Elder Scrolls game, like especially the earlier Elder Scrolls games, stuff like Daggerfall, which was sort of deliberately simulating this much larger possibility space and taking the risk that a lot of that space would just be boring or not have any stuff in it just to give you the experience of existing in that space. In the same vein, you have stuff like, um, I think, Darklands, the sort of medieval fantasy game where it's all about ex existing in this kind of world of weird satanic magic and medieval crappiness. Um, you have games like that that were less interested in having a, co a fully coherent experience and more in like creating a set of systems to define a world that you could be in regardless of whether or not you're having any fun in it. Um, and you can say those games are outdated. You can say that they're not fun to play now because they're so janky and because they sort of sacrificed playability to create that sense of a world. But I, there's something to be said for it too, like kind of making a space that exists for its own sake rather than for yours. I think the world in Ruina definitely does exist for your sake to some degree, like it does expect you to wander through it in the world as the story plays out, does to some degree kind of revolve around your character and what they're doing. But at the same time, it I think does sort of allow for this kind of expressivity, for creating this space that existed before you were there and will exist after you're there. And personally, I think that's really cool. And also like, again, I think the only reason that the guy, that the person who made this game got away with it is because they were making it for themselves. They are making it for people who might find it cool on the internet. They weren't trying to hit a market. They weren't trying to make a game like fans of the Tales games would like or that fans of Dragon Quest would like, although I think maybe they would. They are just trying to make something unique and that's what they did. And if that's not like indie game making, I don't know what is, right? Like why else are we here? Right. Um, and, 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 and you definitely do get a sense of that when... Um, there's a point in the game where up until then you're really just going down this one dungeon that goes deeper and deeper and deeper and then you get to a point where there's kind of an overland map that opens up to you and it doesn't go much much further than that you just get a little basically another map to explore um, but there are points there where you know you kind of get to the end of a road and the game kind of very much acknowledges that there could be another adventure there but that's it for now <laughs> um, and there's this very sort of uh, I would say um, quaint, uh, not quaint, but uh, endearing, endearing um, self-awareness in this game. And I mentioned that earlier as well with, you know, some of the, uh, you know, game over screens that you get where you can get a hint from, and I, the character's name is Yulia, uh, who basically you know, kind of tells you what to do, that there's maybe a guide for this monster. But but that self-awareness is, again, it's endearing. And, I, and it, it speaks to the fact that this game ultimately is just there to have fun. Um, so I did want to come back around to one thing, Adam, because we were talking about the, the character class or, you know, kind of how you started the game. Um, and I mentioned some, on my end, I started with the thief and orphan, um, sort of options, but I was curious what your first experience with the game was. So when I started out the game, the very first time I chose a knight character, I would say, if you are going to play Runa for the first time and you want like the quote unquote optimal experience, choosing a knight isn't a bad idea. First off, because like that, that gives you access to classes that are quite strong and durable, which is useful, but also because there's a good amount of story that you get access to. Like there are a number of important characters in the story who do pop up 
um, in the night background, where it's kind of useful just to have them wandering around in the background. In which case, like that's a good place to start. And I'm not the only person who says this. If you there's a let's play on something awful of Ruina that's played through most of the game, and I believe the person on that let's play did also recommend the Knight's Path and the Thief Path, actually, the Raise My Orphans Path, as two that had pretty significant story significance to the main plot. Um, so either of those places is a good place to start in my book, as far as I know. Now, that's not to say that there isn't anything interesting about the other two paths, because they do, again, put you in a contact of other NPCs that kind of give you a new side of them you might not have expected. I think that's cool. Again, it's like this game's variance, where depending on how you start it and how you want to do it, and even just like picking a different profession, like maybe if you pick the mage path, you could be a necromancer instead of a mage, like he was telling you not to. Um, it does kind of open up some additional opportunities um, while still letting you change things around if you want. Like this one thing that this game does, I think is pretty good, is that while characters who are in battles are the only ones in your party who will earn experience from those battles, this game does give all of your characters experience for completing encounters on the map. And almost all of your experience in this game is going to come from triggering those encounters rather than from battles. So you can count on the fact that while all the characters in your party who like or characters in the inn who you bring into the dungeon, those characters, if they're not in the dungeon, may be like a level or two behind, but they will still be comparable in power. It's very unlikely in this game you'll end up in a situation where um it's very unlikely they'll end up in a situation where it's just you and two other people who are super strong and everyone else is like useless i mean that's the danger in something like a final fantasy game that doesn't have that kind of level scaling where if you aren't just carefully leveling each character up individually you might be in a state where only a couple people are useful and everyone else is useless I mean, even if you rotate. that doesn't really as far as i know it doesn't really happen here to that same degree which is good there are things you'll be locked out of if you don't you know if you don't bring a character to a certain area. You might not get their story. You can miss out on the character's side quests if you don't like spend enough time with them. But a lot of the time, if you want to just completely change your setup, you can do that. And in fact, the game encourages it. Like there are some, again, there are some nodes on the map. You need a certain character to access. We might say, hey, um, you know, I need a character of survival, but I'm a knight, so I don't really want another physical fighter here. What if I grab the archer? and have her in my party because she has survival skills. She can navigate a boat. It's fine. And so you spend your time with her. You go, what if I like try, I need a long bow for her because her short bow is kind of crappy. So I go out on the world map and try to hunt down the place where they sell wood so you can turn the wood into a long bow. These things all just keep playing out and keep sort of naturally discovering new things as you move along, which I think is really cool. And it's not just discovery. It's in, it's fights. Um, some of your characters are going to have more useful abilities for some fights than others. And if you hit a roadblock, odds are go back to your party, see who else you have there. What are their abilities? Is someone specifically maybe good against undead creatures? Consider that as an op option. Do you have a holy mace? Is that maybe particularly good against some creatures? Do you have an ability that's good against beasts and you're fighting a beast? Again, th there's a lot there if you really pay attention to your characters and your builds. And again, this isn't the type of game that really stresses the you know encounters and having to have the perfect you know min-maxed build, but it doesn't hurt. And it is feasible to to have that level of detail in here. 
And again, like another way in which the Western RPG influence and Japanese RPG influence sort of crosses over is this is, I think, a game that lets you sequence break encounters to some degree. Like often you'll be going through in kind of the conventional order. But for instance, if you're out, so you unlock a world map at a certain point, like Alex said, and that world map is somewhat limited, but you will stumble across fights on that map that you are very likely not strong enough for yet. You're kind of expected to come back to it later. But if you're smart and you play your cards right, you can beat those encounters right away. Um, you know, Ruina, so Ruina's made an RPG maker, which has a very simple kind of Dragon Quest inspired battle system. You wouldn't think that the combat's that complicated or challenging, and it is like fairly conventional in some ways. But I think the way that the fact that the numbers in Ruina are so small, and the way that the damage formulas work, it really feels like it's built in such a way that not only. 160 damage? Damn, that feels good. That's all. It feels good. Yeah. And that's, that's not really, that's really the kind of thing you, you don't just, I mean, sometimes you can luck into that, but that's when that happens, it, because you go, what if I bring this character into the situation, match them up with the right tools, use the right ability on the boss, have all those things line up. You can just really accomplish things you thought you just couldn't do. Um, So the game does allow for that, which I think is pretty cool because a lot of the time in these kinds of games, it's fairly fairly linear, like you're kind of running into new challenges. You beat the challenge, you go on to the next challenge. Ruina does let you game the system to some degree. It allows for that extra possibility space, like a good Western RPG would. And it's always it feels really great whenever you pull something like that off, especially because you'll get like lots of you'll find some new really strong item, or you'll unlock like a piece of lore you didn't know anything about, or maybe you just stumble on a new party member or find out some completely new part of the game you didn't even know existed um actually alex if you're interested i want to play a game i thought it would be fun if we go take turns and go back and forth saying something about the game that surprised us i want to see if one of us um just gets completely caught off guard by something they didn't experience like i bet you saw some things that i didn't see and i bet i saw some things that you didn't see so to start this off, I'm going to say, based on what I, I haven't personally done this, but I've heard that you can actually create a slime to join your party by, oh, 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 God damn, Alex did do that. Did. So in this game, you can create a slime to join your party by, I think, is it mixing or cooking? I'm not sure. Well, either by mixing or cooking, you combine two ingredients together and you make a slime and the slime can join your party, which is nuts. So I'm actually not sure how I did it. To be totally honest, I was just, I must have concocted something at, at some point. It might've been by, by a cooking accident, actually. It was unintentional. And I was just going and I must've missed it when it happened. And I was going through my inventory today when I was playing the game earlier and I was like, what the hell is this? And I had like a star, like a lore item. And I clicked on it. And suddenly it's like, this blob just joined your party. I was like, what the heck? And so then I just had a blob with me until I returned to town. And then the blob was like, okay, see ya. <laughs> and that was that. I just randomly had a fourth party member uh, for like a good chunk of this dungeon. You Now, the, the interesting thing is he the, the blob has a mind of its own. Uh, I almost said he, I don't know, they, uh, non-gendered blob, I don't know. Um, and they just have a mind of their own. 
they 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 act on their own volition. You cannot give them commands. Uh, but yeah, you have a blob party member that you can just. Uh, I think I think it's a cooking accident because I was trying to think like where the hell did I find this? Because I completely missed when I joined my party. Uh, or not my party, my inventory. And then you had to interact with it in your inventory in order for it to join your party. Yeah, but that, that happened. It's just such a random thing. And I, <laughs> you know. Okay, Alex, now it's your turn. What okay. thing surprised you or like caught you by a surprise that you think I might not have seen? Because I was actually surprised that you found that because I haven't yet. So you've already won this game, I think. I'm behind. But let's see what you have to say. You know, it's actually going to be something that I, well, rather... It surprised me when you told me what the alternative solution to this was, um, and that, and I'm gonna slightly spoil this, but I don't, can you spoil a game like this? There's just so many depths to it, but um, and it was there's there's this huge monkey that you run into uh, on the overworld map, and I brute forced my way through this monkey, something fierce. Like I definitely had to kind of try a couple of times, but I had this feeling that I had the right combination in my party if I just found the right pieces. I'd be able to, to beat it. And I did. And I felt so good about myself for having defeated this dumb monkey. And then I talked to Adam about it. And he's like, oh, yeah, if you just bring uh, this, like, maid thief uh, party member, it turns out they're from the same village and uh, they're pals. And you can just avoid the whole encounter. And I was like, freaking kidding me. <laughs> it's like that simple. So, um, so again, it was not something that I experienced, but it was so cool that that was there. And this is the thing about these games that I love. And a lot of people, like, from a game design standpoint, there's a conversation now. You can kind of see it with Elden Ring, uh, with some game developers being like, but, you know, what if someone misses that? You spent all this time working on that. Why would you let someone miss this this element of, of, of your game? But, but here's the answer. It's so cool. Okay, so one, I'm sorry, you have to have friends. But we live in the world of the internet. Everyone knows someone. You're part of an internet conversation if you're not part of a personal one or interpersonal one or whatever. Um, but it's so cool to be able to experience these games with other people and have these conversations and realize, oh shit, I had this experience and you had that experience. It, it brings an element of social interaction to the games that are otherwise very personal and being able to share that to me is so special. Like that's, it's, it's so much fun to be able to have that. Um, and you really don't get that with um, with games that are very linear or very sort of, you know, set on having a specific experience and you cannot deviate from that. Not really. I mean, sure, you can talk about, oh, they had that experience, like that moment was really cool, dude, but it's not the same. Um, I did actually have a similar question, which is not quite the same because you said surprising what was your favorite encounter? And I'm going to give you an example of what my favorite encounter was in the game. And um, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give two examples. Uh, the first one was the champion Nightseed, uh, who is this like crazy half naked, wears just a you know bikini, like, you know, bikini briefs kind of situation. Uh, and it's very much like wrestling. And you have to, he challenges you and you have to fight him. Um, and I leaned hard into the the role playing element for this, uh, which I I have the weirdest archer character in this game <laughs> for this reason because I decided that once I defeated this guy, and there is a trick, and I actually will you know what actually I will spoil it because the game is really obtuse as to how to defeat this guy, and I had to l actually look it up. Um, you have to fight him without any weapons. I mean, he tells you to fight him one on one, so I don't know if that's a hint, but I didn't get that. 
It's a one-on-one -on -one fist fight. Yeah, you can't do any damage to him yeah. unless you take him on with your bare hands. Um, and there also are apparently special weapons in this game that are more effective against these quote-unquote joke characters. That's a whole other level of unexpected depth that this game has. But anyway. Yeah, I wonder if something like the net. I've actually been looking into some of the uh, the things you can craft, so I, I was wondering that as well. Um, but but when I say that I really leaned into the role playing, is I beat this guy and I got his champion's belt and his bikini briefs, and now my archer character is wearing these bikini briefs and champion's belt, and uh, well, she'll be wearing these until the end of the game. That is part of the character now, and I mean, for what it's worth, these are actually really useful items. Um, her like attack powers through the roof. So she is the biggest glass cannon in the world. So it works, but it's also dumb. <laughs> like she basically just won, like my character just won this like wrestling championship and she's just like, yeah, oh, hell yeah, I'm here. I am the champion now. Uh, so I think that's hilarious, but I love that you can have these little bits of role-playing. Now uh, this is all kind of, kind of be the same idea. There's a, there are cursed items in this game. And uh, we haven't mentioned cursed items yet. And I, I walked right into a cursed item uh, and I didn't realize it was cursed. Uh, it was like, oh, this sounds cool. And uh, whoop, I just had the sound of the gameplay. Um, let me let me I'll, I'll go right to you, Adam. It's the uh, bone mask is the, the helmet. So uh, in the, the, the story of my character's equipment, I found his bone mask. It had really good stats. I equipped it. And uh, two seconds later, you're cursed. Oh, shoot. What, is, what does that mean? Um, there's a person in town who can help with that. I went to look it up. And basically, it means that you, unless you uh, remove the curse, in which case the item is destroyed, you are stuck with that uh, item equipped. And, uh, well, it's a dang good item. So she now is, uh, my character is wearing bikini briefs, a champion's belt, and a bone mask. So I'm winning. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those cases... I think there are like other effects to curses and make them kind of annoying to have around. There are some items where even if they're relatively strong, you may not find it worth it. But, you know, there are some items that are cursed and are really strong. So this is one of those cases where, again, this game allows for a possibility space where like first off, non-optimal play, it's still possible to succeed that way. But also there are some cases where you might take on like a specific uh, flaw or injury to your character, like something like a cursed item. That may seem like it's a bad thing, but actually, like, based on your build, it's pretty strong. And that's pretty cool. Um, so Alex asked me what moments I would select as ones that really stood out to me. And I'm going to cheat and bring up sort of two that are in mind. I, I did so um, and these are just, these aren't, like, one-off encounters. These are actually part actual parts of the story everyone will encounter. But they were two that just really stood out to me. One of them is the one Alex brought up with the mysterious knight who no human can harm. Um, you find out about this knight early on in the myth that you track down. And, um, you know, if when you encounter the knight, it's not like a character says, it's just like that knight from that story we read. You have to make the connection on your own that this is, in fact, the knight. But you can beat this knight by throwing strong items at it until the knight dies. That's possible, but challenging. But the more conventional way of beating it is just for some bizarre reason it involves like, okay, how do you beat this knight? That can't be beaten by a human. I know. We'll find a dragon to beat it. How do you find the dragon? You talk to the giant dragon skeleton in the same cave while the enemies are chasing you. You learn the art of naming from the dragon skeleton. And lo and behold, there is a dragon egg in that same cave. You name the dragon. The dragon becomes yours. You get a new party member. The dragon like can breathe acid and fire. And you take the boss down that way. 
it's just it's the kind of encounter that frankly doesn't even really feel like an encounter from a Japanese role-playing game it feels like some just chain of events from a tabletop game it's like almost the kind of thing where you're improvising it on the spot you're like oh I know like how do you defeat this enemy that can't be defeated by humans let's get a dragon and do it like it really just it's a series of events that is just very strange and doesn't necessarily perfectly fit with kind of already existing fantasy tropes, but that's what makes it really cool. It's that same feeling you have when a bunch of people in the same room sit together and kind of collaborate on a story together, except you're getting this feeling from a game made by one person. So I think that's really neat personally, that's able to convey that sense of being with a group of friends and kind of playing through this story that takes you to places you just didn't expect. The other part of this game, I think, is really memorable for me. Um, once you move past that cave, you enter this much larger hall area that I think is like sort of the first kind of boss area in the game where it's very dangerous. There's a lot of just very bizarre encounters around that will cause serious problems for you. But this is an area of the game, there are sections in it that basically turn this into a horror game. It's like all of a sudden, the horror DNA of RPG Maker games, stuff like Ib or uh, Mad Father, that d did not seem to be present in this game suddenly just pops out. Is this about the babies? Suddenly you have babies on the ceiling oh, who are yeah. staring down at you. <laughs> Sometimes, suddenly, like, oh, you find a bath and you go to lay down in the bath and it heals your party, but you wake up and the bath is full of blood. Like, that just happens. Um, the fact that this game can just turn on a dime like that and just while going from being like uh, eccentric but like pretty understandable sort of fantasy role-playing experience just diverge entirely into something that's suddenly a lot scarier and more out there I think really just goes to show like how just varied this game is and like how there's even though these just really out there extreme things are happening it still feels like part of the same game like the the world is sort of thorough enough in how it's built and the tone is consistent enough that even though it kind of stretches up against the limits of the world space it never feels to me as if you're just in a different game entirely it just feels like oh yeah this is another part of it like ruina is um people like having conventional dungeon adventures it's also like suddenly this horror thing and that's fine it can contain both of those things in the same way that, you know, tabletop Dungeons and Dragons, it can be Forgotten Realm stuff. It can be um, Planescape stuff. It can be like a Ravenloft or something. All of these things are possible. No, and I, I, so I, because you mentioned this, because this is exactly where I'm in the game right now is that big hall area. And the, uh, the, the thing with the babies, the game does an excellent job of building you up to that moment. Like as you're kind of making your way to that room, you're running into things that are like they're watching. You know, there's like these little hints that someone wrote something like to kind of give you some warning of what's coming up ahead. And then when you get to that encounter, I think you're reading a, a like a journal or something and it ends with, you know, they're watching. And then you're like, you look above and they're like, they're watching you. And it's like, it's the creepiest thing, the way it builds up to it. Um, and that is like legit, like narrative horror, the way that it's, you know, written and paced. Um, and the game is really well paced in the way that it leverages environment to create narrative. And, and that is, it, that's so cool about this game because it pushes you to be like, well, what if I click on one more thing? There's that, it's like, like one more click sort of like uh, idea that you get with something like a Civ game, right? I, I love Civ. So that's, 
how I related this, but uh, where you just want to do like one more thing, one more action. But in this game, it's like click on one more thing to discover. And like it, it really pushes you forward into the game, it gives you this sense of momentum, um, which alongside with how well paced the game is, um, and it's not a very long game, so it doesn't overstay its welcome at any point. But, but that's what's found me kind of engaging with the game again and again and again and wanting to discover more. Um, where if you really think about what you're doing, practically speaking, it's not a complex game. There's no like, you know, th there's not as, I mean, it's not, that's unfair. It is a complex game, but it's not a game that you're just going to get lost in, in how much there is to do. It's pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a role-playing game with turn-based action. And there's a, there's a story that's pretty much, you know, gods don't like humanity. Humanity is under threat. The end. Like, defeat a big bad <laughs> what you're saying is that it's not an elder scrolls game alex is that correct, that is correct. or actually what i meant to say before i made that joke it's not crusaders king 3 or something no yeah i mean you're not going to get lost in the systems but or, or the items or the, the amounts of tomes of lore that you're going to find everything here is easy to kind of wrap your hands around but um that doesn't make it any less worth uh, i mean again because of that pacing because of of how well it's told um, I think it works tremendously well. Um, and to that end, I mean, again, let's talk more about this this sort of part of the game where I'm at because I'm, that's where I am and it's on my mind. Um, and you mentioned kind of the horror elements of this game. Um, I encountered this cyborg creature in that same area that the game tells you again and again and again, don't go fight this thing. You're not going to be able to defeat it. Now, granted, by where, where I got in the game tells you also how you're, you can defeat it, which is like either you defeat the, the thing controlling it, which is the emperor. I mean, I mean, that's like beating the game, right? So, or you find some way to trap it in another dimension. And okay, fine. I just so happened to have made it to a point in the game where the game is literally like, huh, this looks like it could be another dimension. How strange is that? Um, so if you remember that and that this was up on a tower and this tower might end up in another place, like maybe you can leverage that, which I did. But what I found to be very interesting is the game very strategically gives you all of this information before you can, I think, reasonably get to the cyborg uh, creature. And then by the time you get there, you're kind of going down this sort of labyrinthian path that kind of curls in. And as you go through it, there's like these all these points along the way that are like, no, stop, don't go, don't do this. But you're like, no, but I want to do it. I really want to do it. I might even know what's there, but I still want to do it. Damn it. I just you just feel compelled to keep going, even though, you know, against your better sense exactly what this is going to be. But you're just curious to see how it's going to unfold. Um, and I found that to be very interesting about this game where it's willing to tell you exactly what's going to happen and against your better senses you know that you shouldn't do this but you just want to know what might happen if it goes wrong and and when it does go wrong that's more interesting and again this is something i think goes very counter to the way that we've been taught to play video games of late like modern video games are very concerned with there's a right way and a wrong way and you really want to win the right way you want to get the right answer but in role-playing games traditionally speaking getting the wrong an wrong answer makes for better storytelling it's more compelling it's more interesting failing makes for better storytelling quite frequently than succeeding 
uh, in D&D campaigns. I have frequently, as a DM, found it more interesting if my group member, like if the party fails, not because, oh, ha-ha, they lose, but because, well, the, spoilers, they never really lose. You don't want to be the DM that makes your party lose. That's just, you're, you're a bad DM. But potentially that opens up other avenues for storytelling that are more interesting than, ha-ha, we beat the bad guy. Um, so falling down the, 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 you know, the hole that you kind of could have hopped over falling into a trap, you know, can be more interesting because it opens up possibilities and this game is not afraid to do that. And I love it. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I would also say a criticism of Runa that I actually have, and this may have something to do with the difficulty level I'm playing on, which is normal. It could be that on an easier difficulty level, this is less of a problem. The thing is you can't save in the dungeon. If you're in there and you, an item, that's right. Uh, Alex just pointed out there are items you can use to save in the dungeon. So if you find some of those, that helps. But conventionally, if you don't have the right item, you, um, oh, wait, do you mean, wait, Alex, are you saying you can use that item whenever you want? I think you can only use it once. Okay. God, for a second, I was like, wait, if you're telling me that you can just use an item anytime you want, and I always thought it was a use item, I would freak out. I could try and see what happens. I don't know. I oh, my God. Okay. I'm going to assume they can only use this item once. If you can use it multiple times, just feel free to point at and then laugh at me through your phone or however you're listening to this podcast. I mean, I've been too afraid to use it, so I'm with you. <laughs> right. So um, I've already used mine. Anyway, um, so the, the thing is that if you look at an earlier, I mean, if you look at an earlier uh, Baldur's Gate game or like even like even earlier computer games than that, they allow you to save whenever you want to some degree or another, which means that if you're in a, if you're about to embark on a difficult encounter, you have some degree of control over whether like when and how you have to restart that encounter. In the Baldur's Gate game, if you come across an enemy, you can save your game. You try to encounter an enemy. If you die, you can just um, retry from that save and go do something else. The way that Ruina is designed, because it encourages you to go deeper and deeper into the dungeon and continuously sort of try new things, that does mean that it's set up in such a way that you will inevitably reach points where you die. And often that means you lose progress and you have to go back to the start. For me, that is actually pretty frustrating because you like don't have a lot of control over when you can save. It means you have a lot more of these situations where you have to just, you lose a lot of stuff, especially because like this game does sort of sometimes give you items after encounters somewhat randomly. So you might find that, say you're fishing, and you get a pretty rare rainbow fish that heals 80% of your MP, which is great, but then you're killed by an enemy, you have to restart, and you just lose that, and that's just something you have to live with. I mean, you can say, oh, it's sort of nice how it makes you commit to your choices, but personally, I wish you had the option to like more thoroughly choose where you want to restart or how you want to restart. Um, again, it could be that earlier difficulty settings, like easy mode or something, does give you that chance. I'm not sure because I haven't used that difficulty. I just feel like that is actually an area in which Ruina is actually more challenging or more limiting than others RPGs of that type. Now, of course, if you want to go back to stuff like Wizardry, from what I understand, Wizardry really does limit when and how you can save in that same way. Or maybe even worse, it just saves all the time. So you just have to roll with whatever mistakes you make. And of course, that's a specific practice that Dark Souls has built out as well like Dark Souls and Elden Ring and those kinds of things are built around the idea that any choice that you make is inevitably permanent and that's just the way it is. Um, but, you know, because this game does allow for so much variance and experimentation, 
I do wish that I gave you that control just so like, for instance, if you were wandering around in that dungeon, you could set the game down and go and do something else without worrying about losing your XP multiplier. I mean, in the long run, it's probably okay. It's just something that stood out to me as something that's kind of frustrating. On another note, I'll also say one issue with the translation that may partially be a problem more with just the limits of what the translator could do in this game is that items are missing a lot of useful information in the, in the descriptions in terms of what their properties are and what they can do. I mean, you know, items have properties in this game, like different weapons you find, like you might have a blunt weapon or a slashing or piercing weapon. You might have weapons that have like the assassin trait, which means they're very strong against humans. These are all things you should know, but those traits are not, as far as I know, they are not present in the game itself. You have to sort of source it from the outside if you want to find out on your own. And this is pretty annoying because there are definitely cases, for instance, when it comes to armor even, where it's really useful to be able to know what the individual properties of these things are. I mean, this is especially annoying when it comes to crafting because the way the crafting menu works, it's effectively impossible to know what you're making. You might find yourself saying, I'm gonna make like this special cloth armor, but then you make it and you find out that only female or male characters can use it. And you're like, well, why did I make that to begin with? Or, oh, only wizards can use it. Or you go, oh, it turns out that like your character can equip that thing. And that's, again, it's pretty annoying, honestly, that it uh, doesn't let you do that, frankly. And I part of that, again, is because my understanding is that the Japanese version does lay that out to a better degree. I mean, I'm not sure about the crafting menu, but at least like within your menu, because of the way that hiragana and kanji work, you can just fit much more information on in there. So the translator was limited in that respect. But it does mean if you're going to play this game, you probably want to play it with like an Excel file or a notebook or a text file nearby of all that information kind of like you're playing an old school fantasy star game or something like that because like trust me you're gonna need it and you're not gonna get it so that is one way in which like this is almost like it is a niche sort of game where you're gonna have to like have this information next to you when you're going through it don't expect it to give it to you it's not because that's what the game is trying to do i think it's more just a limitation of the engine and what it can do so i will add a quick thought to that um i think as far as the items are concerned that's really an element of choice i've kind of just leaned into i don't know surprise me just if i'm going to take a chance on crafting something and i'm not sure i will take the risk that it'll potentially be useless but then i'll have the item and i can decide what to do with it later um, and i've been fine to do that like i don't feel like i've lost anything in terms of battle ability or anything else like that but what i will say you definitely want a notebook on you because as you run through the world, you'll talk to people and it will give you very, very important hints. And not all of them are going to be easily rememberable. There is a, a hint I just ran into for something that I have not yet encountered, um, which has to do with uh, creating like a box, but it, which sounds weird to say, but it's like something like a Sudoku. It literally sounds like playing Sudoku. And it tells you how to start playing it and how to do it and what the rules are and how to beat it. And I'm like, I will not remember this by the time I encountered this particular puzzle in the game. Um, so I haven't written it down yet, but I know I like the very next thing I'm doing in this game after I'm like resting and heading back out is going to talk to this person. I'm going to take notes on all of the things it told me uh, because here's the other thing. There really isn't a guide for this game. It's not like freaking Elden Ring. You can just go online and find a million resources that tell you how to beat a thing. 
uh you well there's like one playthrough that you can find that probably gives you like actually that's how i found out about the barehanded thing um but there still aren't a ton of resources in terms of resources i found three tools online that i found useful one of them if you go to the translators page so bool is the name of the programmer who helped the translator uh, put the translation together and there's a text file there called bool's tools if you go through there those do actually give you a good a good amount of information both about like some of the more challenging parts of the game but also just stuff like skills characters learn and that kind of thing so that's like a useful resource it won't give you everything you need but at least like helps set you on your way option number two ruina is like sort of a cult game on the japanese freeware scene if you go to some of these um online freeware websites that have these uh, free japanese games that people make it's often like listed in like the top 20 or 40 games there because it's just been like a small success for that long sort of this famous game um there are a couple of wikis online that have a bunch of information both in terms like sort of cataloging what everything does but also providing hints and strategy as well in terms of what the most optimal builds are this isn't a game where you necessarily need optimal builds but for instance if you're building a character and you're saying well what skill should i pick what should i combine it with um, if you can't speak Japanese, even just going to one of those Wikipedias and using Google Translate or something, even if the results are kind of crappy, it'll give still give you some idea of what might help. So that's one useful thing. The third thing is, again, that a Let's Play on something awful that's running right now, the person did play through most of the game on the Mage path, which, of course, kind of cuts off certain things. You don't experience, as of yet, like they haven't covered a lot of the story and the other origins. Um, but what it does mean is that they do sort of not only do they kind of tell you about how this stuff works as they play through it which includes a good amount of what happens in the game but also they were nice enough to include excel files with all the weapons and what they do and also all the crafting ingredients and the crafting recipes so that's actually pretty useful like i think if you're looking around on the internet for this stuff this information does exist. It just takes some extra time to track down, which is frustrating because the game itself already takes a good amount of time to track down. So the way to do it is clearly just get everyone else to play the game so they can all write like walkthroughs and that kind of thing. I mean, there should be like an English language ruin a wiki. I'm not sure why it's taken this long. I know there's a Reddit, but I don't think anyone uses it. So like fans of the internet, please play Ruina. Learn these things for yourself. Write these tips we're doing so this. we can all do it together. We can... Discover the fairy tale of the forgotten ruins, as they say. Yes. And on that final thought, I actually do have one last question. So that wasn't really the final thought. But as we're winding down, rather, I should say, um, did you find the dragon? I did find the dragon. I did not fight the dragon. I'm going to guess that dragons are way too strong for me right now. I mean, Ruina is a game where dragons are dragons. Like, they mean something. You're not going to come across a dragon and take it out in one shot. You're going to want to come back to it later. It's like E-Train Odyssey-style dragons or Baldur's Gate, like um, Dungeons & Dragons tabletop tile dragons. And before we wrap things up, I would also just like to say Ruina really is just one piece of a much, again, a much larger tradition of indie games in Japan that just are not available here. I mean, there's, and it really, the rabbit hole really does go pretty deep. You have stuff like, we mentioned Helen's Mysterious Castle. You have a Helen's Mysterious Castle or Demon King Chronicle. You had sort of pioneers of that sort of search action RPG genre like Nepenshul 
that are not in English and we can't access that do sort of like lay a lot of the groundwork for those later games. You have stuff like an Alice Hole in a similar vein. You have stuff like the Towel Kit games that sort of combine RPG horror tropes with more traditional role-playing games. Um, you have just a pretty wide range of really varied and interesting stuff that, I mean, you have like the classic sort of role-playing experiences like a Dragon Quest or a Tales game or whatever. There's a ton of those that are quite good, but apparently there's a lot of really experimental stuff like for instance rpgs that give you a set number of footprints in a dungeon before you encounter a boss where like the only way to buy new items is to use up your is to use up your own health points like there's lots of games like that made by very small teams or just single people that frankly probably push the genre forward further than any game made by square enix or any other smaller developer in the in like the past several years but all of it is like very little of it's available in english so i you know i'd love to see some of that stuff eventually be more accessible in the future um although you know translators don't always want their stuff to be even made available in english and that's also fine like if the creator of the game feels one way or another like i guess that's the way it is but you know i am definitely very thankful that ruina which long ago was only like a bunch of screenshots on the internet, something that English speakers cannot really play and understand. It is now available to a much wider audience. And that doesn't make, that, that that's not like, I mean, you know, people in Japan could already play it. People in China could already play it. That's a lot of people who could play Ruina. Ruina was not necessarily unknown, except to people in like the United States, right? But now, like at long last, stuff like this, it is like sort of a door to another world of video games that, we just don't really know about in this country. So I think it's a really great opportunity to see something that, as far as I know, doesn't really have any other parallel to it. Like you can make some comparisons, again, to Kawazu games, like the Saga games. You can make some comparisons to stuff like Baldur's Gate or to like even the E-Train Odyssey games or stuff like Wizardry. But to me, like kind of the combinations in of like those elements in Ruina is pretty distinct. I I think there are a couple of games that may have been influenced by its approach, but I can't think of anything that does it in exactly the same way. So if for any other reason, like you should really check this game out because despite the fact it was like, you know, made and released for free, despite the fact it's like sort of this passion project in a old school antiquated engine, even like antiquated at the time like i don't think people were really using rpg maker 2000 in 2008 like as actively as they were um, it was sort of a throwback in that respect as well um it it's just really this unique thing that you owe it to yourself to check out because you're not gonna find anything else like it Unless you do something like, oh, checking out um, Inkle Sorcery games, which are quite different, but maybe kind of playing in a similar area where they're trying to evoke this feeling of like very, very old school tabletop games. Um, there, it's just, it's very much its own thing. Um, so I would definitely think whether or not you like the game, it's absolutely worth seeking out, especially because it's free. It really is to me one of the defining statements in kind of free role-playing games, especially made in this engine. 
in terms of just making something the creator wanted to make for like whatever audience wants to play it, no commercial considerations, just doing something that otherwise not exist. And that's pretty amazing because these days that still happens to some degree. In fact, like there's a lot of really cool indie stuff being made right now on places like itch and that kind of thing. But games like this that are pretty heavily mechanics driven to some degree, um, I don't think they're as popular as they were. So this is like kind of a relic of an era when games like this um, were something that people went out of their way to make. So, you know, we I don't know if we'll see another game like this in the future, but we have it now, which is great. So we just, in these cases, have to be kind of thankful what we have, especially that now English speakers can play it. I wholeheartedly agree. It is, it's a beautifully succinct game um, with a lot of narrative depth um, with, you know, all, all the systems that it needs. Um, and, and it works really well. I mean, again, you just want to keep clicking. And I think that's since that's another thing that I want to stress. It's also a succinct game. It, it, it never, and I've said this before, it doesn't overstay its welcome at any point. And there's a lot of other very ambitious games that I think kind of fall in love with what they're doing and they want to do it more and more and more. And this game knows not to do that. And I think that also makes it particularly, um, I think notable because it makes it accessible. I mean, there's the inaccessibility, unfortunately, of the language barrier, which we've mentioned as well. But the fact that it is now available in English, I think, makes it very accessible to a very broad audience. And again, it's free. You just have to, you know, someone has to tell you about it um, and you have to find a website where it's available. But beyond that, um, the fact that it is not a long game, the fact that it is, you know, again, um, very accessible in terms of how to engage with the game mechanics. Like you don't have to learn spreadsheets and spreadsheets of numbers uh, to be able to to be good at the game. You don't have to have the skill level of a master Dark Souls player to dodge and, you know, weave through boss encounters. Um, so in spite of, unfortunately, the inaccessibility of its obscurity, it is a very accessible, succinct gaming experience that nonetheless feels very rich and deep and diverse. And and that's um, that's one of the highest praises I can give for anything. It's It's just... It's, it's memorable, but you also don't have to spend your entire life playing it. But you could. That's the, that's the, again, this kind of comes back to this whole game. You don't have to, but you could. So when I interviewed the translator about this game and talked about their experience, they were talking about how when they saw the game, they saw screenshots of this mysterious obelisk just standing in this ruin. That's this really evocative image that spoke to them. And it honestly seems to me, and this is something I say in the interview as well, Ruina is kind of the equivalent of that object. It's this self-contained, discrete thing that just exists and feels like it came out of nowhere, like this weird space object, this magical object that shouldn't really be and it doesn't have any distinct imperfections or flaws. I mean, of course, you know, because it is the game it is, it ha it's not perfect, it has some problems, but it, it really feels like it kind of came into the world fully formed. Since we haven't talked to the original developer, I can't say how long this game took to make. I can't say whether there are earlier versions of this or whether there was like a longer process led to the creation of this thing. I mean, as far as I know, this developer never released 
another game or a game in a similar vein. It just kind of just it exists on its own as a self-contained statement of what RPGs can be or what they're supposed to do. And um, you know, I think there's something to be said in this era when people have been racing to make the biggest games possible to just as a means of avoiding that kind of compartmentalization. Like the internet is so fast at breaking everything down into its component parts, at taking something like a Horizon Forbidden West and like overnight making it something that's discrete and knowable. And once you do that, there's like some quality that disappears, becomes something else. You kind of lose this sense of mystique I think a lot of people want to capture. The only way that something like Elden Ring can beat that is by being super opaque and also just being so huge that it's just so much more difficult to break it down in that way. And again, like like Alex said, Ruina isn't huge. It's relatively big for what it is, but it's more designed around like replays than around just playing it endlessly. But at the same time, it does sort of feel infinite in its own way. And so there's this very well-curated space that gives you some range to exert agency or to change things or to do things before you're not supposed to. But it's also, it feels constructed all the way through. And you never lose this feeling that you're playing something fully formed that feels like the most fully fleshed out evolution of the thing that it is, that has no real peers and just sort of exists as it is. So I'm, I'm happy it's out there and I hope that people check it out. Yes, please, people, check this game out. Um, it's definitely well worth your time. And again, you don't have to invest that much time to necessarily get so much out of it. Um, and that's really the beauty of it. Um, so on that note, I think we're going to wrap up our conversation here on Ruina. Um, you can find me uh, on that note. You can find me uh, on the Internet uh, nowadays, specifically on Twitch um, uh, at uh, twitch.tv slash thinbalion13 that's t-h-i-n-b-a-l-i-o-n 13 um, I've been streaming Ruina and I will be doing so for a little while yet but probably by the time this is out I will have moved on to the next thing thinking maybe Chrono Cross don't keep me don't hold me to that um, we'll see what happens we'll see where, where the whim strikes um, but I do know I'll be playing Chrono Cross next so uh, there's a good chance that'll that'll make its way up there at some point. Um, and Adam, Alex just wants to say that he wants us to play an Elder Scrolls game, but he doesn't want to hurt my feelings. No, you can find me at uh, Wendigo at W E N D E E G O on Twitter. You can read the stuff I write over at Crunchyroll News or the stuff I write at Slashfilm or some other stuff I write at the blog. Isn't it electrifying? Um, if you go to my Twitter page, you should be able to find links to all that stuff. Thank you all, and good night.